Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan. I am so grateful to have a place to talk about faith, politics, theology, these big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished people of goodwill in good faith. Now, please remember to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you have and you're really liking this, tell somebody about it. Just tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell your Aunt Tilly, the proverbial Aunt Tilly. Huh? And uh, you could also leave a rating and a review. Uh, the easiest way to find us is our main site, which is www.politicsandreligion.us. That's politicsandreligion.us. Or feel free to connect with me on all the social media apps, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Yeah, I'm kind of still on there. LinkedIn and the new one, post.news. You can find me at Corey S. Nathan. That's at C-O-R-E-Y, S as in Sam, Nathan at Corey S. Nathan. All of that helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation like the one we're having today that I'm really, really excited about with my new friend, Dr. Roberto Che Espinosa. Dr. Roberto is a trans, queer, Latinx activist scholar, politicized theologian. Dr. Roberto is the founder of Activist Theology Project, which is emerging as our collective becoming a collaborative team passionate about a commitment to the ethics and politics of in conjunto. I'm trying to get that right. That's good. That's perfect. Thank you. Which means togetherness. The Activist Theology Project is a group of politicized theolo theologians and healers, social change agents, and strategy-minded people in the hybrid space of the church, social change, and the academy. Dr. Roberto has spent two decades working on DEIB movements, and initiatives focused on new concepts of being and becoming and decolonizing knowledge production. And just even in that description, I have so many questions for you. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get into it. <laughs> Most importantly, translating theory into action. And Dr. Roberto is a prolific podcaster and writer, most recently of his important latest book, Body Becoming, a path to liberation and dr e is also now a renowned ted talker is, it, is that <laughs> is that the title like a you know I, a... yeah i think i think <laughs> that i'm an official ted talker all right yeah there's a ted talk so we'll we'll be sure to put those uh notes in the in the bio so anyway it's great to see you how you doing it's good to be yeah it's good to be here it's good to be back almost in the flesh with you we almost. were just together a couple weeks ago which which was real a real gift uh for me um Certainly when we shared a meal, that was my favorite because I love having meals with people and talking religion, politics, uh, across all, all different sorts of, of differences. Uh, so it's good to be here. Yeah, it's really cool that we get a chance to do this. And I'm really enjoying nurturing a, uh, a new friendship with you. Yeah. So to start, I figured I, I want to share a quote with you. And I I'd like to I'd like to ask what this quote means to you all that you touch you move all that you move moves you the only lasting truth is movement god is movement yeah i um that is something my partner said to me a couple years ago and i incorporated that into the latest book because it to me when my partner said that to me she my partner aaron has always said the only constant is change. We we can count on change. And I think so many of us have inherited a religio ritual or a religion and politics that is solidified in a ritual of intractability, meaning nothing moves, nothing changes. And I think the brilliance of what what you just read, uh, which is a direct quote from my partner, is that 
if we there are all these different ideas out if we believe in any kind of source or divine being or sacred idea it makes most sense to me that that sacred idea not the nature of that sacred idea but that the idea itself is one that changes Mm. so just to use sort of more traditional language the nature of god or the nature of the source of being the nature itself does not change but the evolution of thought about that idea changes so for example we we have a lot happening right now around what color jesus was so we know jesus wasn't white but Every statue of Jesus in every sacred building has erected a white Jesus. Now, this may be trivial to people and it may not make sense, but my point is that we are in a state of evolution of rethinking what even the texture and the color and the color palette of of people during Jesus's time. And what is this, what does that signify in this moment right now where we know that the geist of white supremacy is something that is harming all of us, white people, people of color, all of us. So can we evolve with the time, our time? Can we evolve with this moment? And if we can, maybe the spirit is in it too. Is that what you mean? One of the really thick concepts just in the introduction is, uh, quote, decolonizing knowledge production. Is what you're talking about part of that larger concept, larger movement, if you will? Yeah. You know, when I think about knowledge production, I am thinking about, in philosophical categories, epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge or knowing. And when I'm thinking and practicing decolonizing knowledge production, I am curious about epistemological ruptures. How can we how can we discern and experience epistemological ruptures so that we can change and evolve and emerge and become. So epistemological ruptures, I've never heard those two words together in that way. Epistemological ruptures, meaning there are gaps in what we human beings know, or we've known these things and they've gotten blown up or so unpack that a little bit for me. So I think there are gaps. I think I think both are true. What you just said. Ruptures also intimates at a wound of some sort. Is that right? Fair? Right. So so a rupture, not a not a wounding in uh, a sense of harm or hurt, but a rupture in the sense of an aha moment. Mm. So we have inherited knowledge production that could be harming us. Right. So how do we how do we move? Right. Like, how do we get this moving uh, both in our bodies and in the space between us? And how can those epistemological ruptures accelerate liberation or create conditions for a shared future? Okay. so my brain is already like on the treadmill at 10 right now. Okay, are we (laughs) on an incline? Yeah, yeah, we're on an incline now too. So I, I um maybe a good way to put our heads is it is to um share an experience that you had just to get some context of who yeah. you are, what this is all about. Something that I shouldn't have been surprised when I read about it, but I was nonetheless, is that you were in Charlottesville, Virginia in August 20, 2017 as part of the response to right. that now infamous Unite the Right rally. Uh, that took place there. So can you share with us what your experience about your experience in Charlottesville? Well, I, you know, gosh, um, 
I will say that organizing a response to white supremacy is a big job. And when I went, I was invited to be there. And when I went, I just didn't feel good about the response because the response was the, the, there was intel that the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, and these militia people, neo-Nazis and so forth, were going to take control of the park where the statue was. And the counter-protest response was to claim the land first. Mm. And I thought, every war is fought over land. Look at the Ukrainian right. invasion right now. It's all about land. And I just didn't think that that was a proper response. I didn't think it was relational. I didn't think that it invited community. It was oppositional. Yes, oppositional politics. Right. I was so captured by that um, f- framing, that understanding. Yeah. So I opted to not participate in what white people did. So as a Latino, as a trans person, I decided to just hold public witness on the corners of second and water because I didn't want to be, I wanted to be there, but I didn't want to participate in oppositional politics, even though, you know, there was a case made for it. And, 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 you know, like multiple things can be true at the same time. Like, it it's true that it was oppositional and also it's true that that may have been the right thing to do like both of those can be true at the same time i just didn't want to participate in an oppositional politic so i opted to hold public witness at the corners of second and water and i talk about this in the ted talk when neo nazis lunged in my direction I was picked up by my security detail and taken into a closed area during which time what appeared to be uh, aluminum cans filled with concrete were being thrown at us along with bottles that we think contained urine or other bodily fluids uh, were being thrown at us. And so it, it it was not a fun party to be to be at. It was quite scary. Uh, our hotel was compromised, so I had to be moved to a secure location. It took me several days to get out of Charlottesville, and and I got a ride to D.C. and then flew home from D.C. Uh, back home to Nashville. So lots of energy, lots of violence. Certainly people, you know, Heather Heyer was, was killed. Other people were injured. I don't wish, I don't wish that on anyone uh, to, to witness that. And there are echoes or that's not the right word for it, but residuals, negative residuals that continued beyond just that incident. Hauntings, I would call them. Yeah. Hauntings. Oh, that's, that's the right word. That's a good word. If you'd like to share uh, examples of some of that, please do. But does that give you pause to continue in this work? Because there's a cost, and the cost isn't just, you know, relegated to that day. Uh, right. You know, does that give you pause to continue? Well, I mean, you know, one of the one of the consequences was I had to move because someone had my mailing address and was mailing unmarked packages to my house and I at the time was living with two other Latino people so it made me concerned for the people that I was living with you know since living in California and being involved in movement work there I've been thinking about security so you know I just thought gosh I'm living in the south and I've got to think about security yeah you got to think about security and so I had to really rethink, okay, like how do I spend my time? Where do I spend my time? How do I do this work in a way that doesn't cost me my life? I mean, it's cost me a lot of anxiety. It's taken a toll on me. And those who are close to you, those who you love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, 
uh, last year was the year of targeted harassment against me from from everybody from Sean Foigt, who is the Christian worship leader, to Matt Walsh. And then in December, it was the Proud Boys who came after me. And that that when the Proud Boys came after me, that really upset my wife because what they were saying was, I want to hate crime it. And they, they couldn't even use a gender pronoun. They couldn't use my name. They just kept calling me an it and wanted to wanted to be violent toward me. And so it's uh, yeah, it's cost a lot. I feel still feel like we've got to make little moves against destructiveness. Yeah. In some capacity. Have you you're you're an incredibly compassionate person. In the short time I've gotten to know you, you're an incredibly compassionate person. Have you gotten your head around why? Like, okay, so individuals and groups of individuals want to do harm to you, great harm to you, right? Yeah. Do you understand their thinking, like what they think that will solve? Is is the potential violence the point, or do they think they're solving a problem by extinguishing you? Like I, I'm trying to get my head around the person who thinks that that is a justifiable course of action. You know, well, I, I think I think the way some of this thinking goes and and some of it, so, you know, some of it is sociopathy, which I don't entirely understand, but that's why I have psychiatrist friends and psychologist friends to to help me understand it. But I mean, I think some of it is we have been socialized to reject difference. And and we have inherited an ideology of sameness or of homogeneity and heterogeneous uh, environments frighten us. They they're anxiety producing. You know, just look at American religion. Why is there a consolidation of power in American religion? Well, if we create same environments, then there is power. Yeah. And imbalances of power scare people. Um, but I believe that our differences make us better people and that we need to steward those differences in ways to create shared futures. And that if your future doesn't include flourishing, then mine doesn't either. And so how can we work together to steward the space between us to create a shared future. En conjunto. <laughs> en conjunto. Yeah. En conjunto. Um, that actually resonates with why our mutual friend Lisa Sharon Harper introduced us. Um, the subject of we so just to um fill in some of the blanks here, um, Dr. E and I met. Um, we were introduced by the wonderful Lisa Sharon Harper. Um, Lisa recommended that I reach out to Dr. Roberto for a panel that I was putting together for an industry conference. The theme of the panel discussion was nurturing community across our differences, which is actually a response of sorts to an incident that happened at another industry conference yeah. last summer uh, that I think actually did just the opposite, like exacerbating differences. But anyway, that's, all, that's maybe for a whole other episode. My question, though, and, and it's one we explored in that I thought it was a great talk, despite the uh, technical difficulties. Yeah. And one of the questions that I had for you is there are there people who hold beliefs and views that due to those beliefs would be outside of this togetherness beyond Enconjunto? Well, you know, this was part of our conversation yeah. a couple of weeks ago, right? That what are the limits of our freedom? And for me, the the limit is around harm. Mm -hmm. And I think that I think that we need to, all of us, we need to have a linguistic imagination. Because if we don't, 
we we might be harming people. How can we have a conversation, not you and me, but like um, the industry on what harm is? How are we defining harm? Because, you know, that incident last summer that I referred to that kind of spurred this talk. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the debate was around exactly that, like the presence of an individual was was saying his very presence is doing harm. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is where this is where we need to have a lot of conversations about harm reduction and consent, Mm -hmm. because when 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 you and I agreed to be in conversation I am consenting to risking yeah. being harmed. Right. But I know that your intention in being in relationship with me is not to harm me, but I might be harm harmed because of our connection. Mm-hmm. Not because of intent, but because of impact. So how do we negotiate that? What what does repair look like? Um, how do I remain connected and grounded in myself while also risking being harmed? And could harm create conditions for an epistemological rupture? Could being harmed in relationship – now, I know just hang with me if you're listening to this. I'm not saying – I'm not saying subject yourself to violence. But if we can risk being harmed, could we create new forms of knowledge? What I'm not what I'm not saying is if someone is abusive, I'm not saying continue in that relationship. But what I am saying is we need to risk the personal. We 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 need we need to have some flesh in the game. Yeah. Yeah. You, there's a quote that really, uh, really caught my attention. That is maybe the uh, the other side of this. That, that's not even. I'm tr- I'm having trouble finding the right words. But your quote um, uh, is the plumb line of becoming is this iterative process where you are in the process of becoming, being made into a better person who can contribute to the healing of our societal and cultural wounds. And then um, V-A-L-E, how do you say that in Spanish? Vale, vale. Vale, vale la pena, right? Yeah, vale la pena. Pena. Do, do, do work that matters. So it reminded me of the Jewish concept, uh, Hebrew concept, the Hebrew word is tikkun olam, um, which is healing the world. Uh, but yeah. in doing so, what you're saying is we, in the process, we risk the possibility of harming ourselves. And each other. And each other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's worth it, isn't it? If if our focus is right, it's worth it, isn't it? I mean, I I I think so. I mean, I I don't know how we create another possible world without risking the personal. Yeah. I mean, if we are just going to stay doing the same thing, then we're going to repeat the same folds of oppression that that have become now intractable. Look at police brutality. Yeah. We just see it differently now. Right. And we see it. We actually we, see it. And we it. see it. You know, the riots in LA after the Rodney King assault yeah. was not new. Police brutality has been happening. We just were able to see it right. differently. And then people begin to risk the personal in response. Risk the personal. I think part of the uh, prescription here is humanizing each other um, and uh, understanding each other not as um, categories or, you know, uh, an individual in a generalized kind of category, which is what we often do. You know, right. and and an entire media complex, uh, entertainment media complex has risen up since approximately 1987, who's made a great success out of doing just that, generalizing, mischaracterizing, vilifying, stereotyping, so, et yeah, cetera. Yeah, exactly. 
I'd like to dive into the different dimensions. So, you know, when I introduced you and on your website, you have these different, for lack of a better word, labels, but I'd like to dive, but, but they're really concepts and dimensions Mm -hmm. is a, is a better way to understand that. Uh, So this is a big confession and and I'm going to sound super awkward saying it, but I know a couple of trans people, but I'm like one step removed. You're somebody who's becoming a friend. You're the first person that I'm in relationship with uh, as a, as a friend that, uh, so I'm learning so much from you. If you're okay with it, can we, can we unpack some of those dimensions of who you are? Yeah. Yeah, So, so, I mean, just the, the, the one that we've been hearing for a while, you said Latino earlier in our conversation, but on your website, it's Latinx and that you're often introduced that way. Can you, can you share um, number one, uh, how you identify what that um, identifier means. Uh, mm. And uh, yeah, so let, let's start there. Well, I mean, it, I have a similar story as you, we, we look a certain way, but it doesn't, it doesn't hold all of who we are. Right. Yeah. I'm born from, I'm born, I was born to, I was born out of a Mexican woman who was dark, caramely brown skin tone who was born in Mexico and a white father. And so my skin color or my racial recognition is ambiguous. You know, there's, it's for some people, it's not clear, but I heavily identify as Mexican American as Latino or Latinx or Latinx or Latina, which, you know, the, the word is evolving. Yeah. Yeah. I use the X in Latinx uh, to denote non-binariness, even though I am a trans-masculine person. I say Latino just to to be to be short, you know, just to as a, it's like a shorthand. Yeah, shorthand. Yeah, um, not everyone accepts Latinx. A lot of people don't know Latina, and so, but people know Latino. Yeah. So, you know, I move in the world uh, as as someone with skin privilege. But my practices, my politics are rooted in the fact that I spent summers in Mexico growing up, that I speak Spanish, that most of my close friends are black and brown people and not all Christian and that Latinidad that really encompasses my orientation in the world. That uh, just this morning, I had a colleague over who is Latino, and we shared a latte together uh, and spoke in Spanglish, you know. Um, <laughs> and 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 that to me, that in between space yeah. is is where I find my resting place, which is not always restful, I should say. This this liminal space, Nepatla, as the Nahuatl called it, uh, it's a place of becoming. It's a place that grates against us. Um, it, it's a wounding place, but is it is the place where I feel most alive. Yeah. It seems to me that the shade of your skin is only one data point but you are inevitably in our culture um, shoved into that bucket yeah. from all different kinds of folks until, until you have that human connection, until right. there's a human being in front of you. Because it, like, I, I just don't think of you as white. Not that I think of you as Latinx or Latina. I don't know. I just think of you as Dr. E. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, because I've gotten to know the human being. Right. But I guess we have to we're sort of forced to deal with that da- that that data point because that's one data point, right? Yes. But even when we were having lunch, you shared with me that there there was cons- there was some concern from some of our panel mates that yeah. maybe maybe the conversation wouldn't go as well as what people were hoping, right? Right. Be- because of stereotypes, because of and to me, what I heard was, oh, that person is anxious because they don't have a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. As soon as I shared more information about you with our, our mutual friend, and then especially 
when you got to know each other, that all went away. There was no concern whatsoever. You know, it's funny. So that that reminds me of something. Jonathan Rausch also taught me a lot. Uh, he was very active uh, early on, um, as as early as the early '90s, in uh, as an activist in getting um, legalizing gay marriage. Uh-huh. And he said the biggest game changer in that movement was that was when folks realized. I know someone who's gay. I love right. someone who's gay, you know, but um, as I mentioned, I don't have, at least I, I haven't been in conversation with folks that um, as you identify trans queer, right? Right. So that's a very specific way to um, it's a, it's a, a, a title. Is that a fair way to put it? Um, uh, an ori- I would say an orientation. Orientation. Okay. It's an, it's an orientation. I'm, I, I, uh, I teach this to my students at Duke and I think, you know, they're probably tired of me saying this, but, you know, queer is not an identity. That's not how the word originated. Queer is actually a reading strategy. It's a hermeneutic. It's an orientation. So I have a queer orientation to the world, meaning I am interested in destabilizing norms so that we can have values that create liber- liberating horizons. And that's what I mean by queer. You know, my my transness is also an orientation that I'm I'm oriented toward a becoming gender. I don't feel fixed in male or female. I still identify as non-binary even though I lean more toward trans masculinity. And there's room for it all. Like there's room for a lot of people. How can we create more room? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I I've been prepping for this conversation for a while and um, just totally coincidentally about, Oh gosh, four or five days ago, I was in this coffee shop meeting with a friend from the, and we're talking about collaborating in uh, the podcast, uh, some podcast ideas and uh, this um, this friend has a trans kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was neither here nor there. That wasn't the focus of our conversation. It was just coincidence. Yeah. So I don't know how it came up, but I in a, I brought up the pastor of the church that we went to for the first 10 years after I became a Christian. Yeah. Because they happened to be on this big hill right next to the coffee shop where we were. And literally within a minute after I mentioned this pastor's name, who I've maintained a, a relationship, uh, he walks in and he, mm. you know, comes over, hugs me. I don't know why this happened. I, it might have been because I mentioned the name of my podcast, Talk Politics and Religion Not Killing Each Other. He launches into basically a sermon about what's wrong with the world. And, you know, uh, he used certain terms like the psychologized self and um, deployed certain uh, factoids of of science, even though he's young earth creationist, I thought it was ironic that he was using yeah. science. But he sent me, I, I want to share something with you. He sent me an article after a conversation. And if this is not a path you want to go down, just stop me and, and we can take this another direction. Um, but the 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 article was written by two professors from BYU. It's titled Every Gender Identity is Authentic, and they put authentic in quotes until it isn't. Uh, the subtitle of the, um, or maybe the lead, uh, you could say, is faddish forms of self-identification often reflect subjective feelings that shift over time. Let's stop treating them as sacred truths. So w- the writers conclude their piece by saying, ultimately, a person's biological sex will remain constant during his or her entire life, no matter how many times he or she picks new pronouns or alters his or her appearance. And an ideology that teaches people to ignore the truth isn't a promising means for distressed people to find inner peace or fulfillment, much less anything approaching true authenticity. Now, I don't bring this up to be confrontational. I bring it up because I'm guessing that you're dealing with this type of posture mm-hmm. on a daily, if not moment to moment basis. How- yeah, all the time. I, I just was on a radio show in the UK with Justin Briley. Oh, yeah. I know Justin. Yeah. And and Calvin, um, I forget his last name, but he's an Anglican ordinan. Um, he he's a black English man, 
we we were essentially debating this and mm. um so yeah i mean i i hear this a lot and i'm happy to riff on that happy to add my comments uh, about what you just read yeah well i mean mostly i i'd love to hear your response to that from an academic theological philosophical standpoint i'd also like on a on a pragmatic level how do you deal with that like how are there tools in your toolbox that that we can learn uh, about and learn how to use in 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 these conversations? You know, I, so the person I was with, she I, I give her so much credit. Her husband was there too. I give her so much credit because she later told me, like inside, I was screaming. Yeah, but she took this strong, um, but uh, I'll call it a neighborly winsome demeanor and the first responses she had were what i would call radically curious uh, mm. monica guzman would be very very proud of how she responded and it was asking pointed questions but curious genuine questions nonetheless and then after going through some of that um, she did assert some uh, ruptures if you will in mm -hmm. his thinking but I, I would like to hear how you interact with this sort of uh, this sort of position, uh, a person who is holding on to this position or asserting this sort of position, yeah, I'd like to hear hear your response. So, this is very similar to what we discussed on Justin Briley's show last spring, and there are there are two ways of understanding biology and gender and sex through something that is called biological essentialism or social constructivism. If gender exists in a social world, meaning it's created by our interactions, by the iterative interactions that we have, is that the same for biology? And Fausto Sterling wrote a book about this that we're reading this semester, Sex and Gender in a Social World. And it's looking at the ways in which biology is also social. It's constructed. It's not just given necessarily. We were talking about this at the dinner table last night. I did some slow cooking yesterday and I made a ragu sauce with uh, short ribs. And so it cooked all day in the Dutch oven. Oh man, that sounds great. It was super good. If you ever come to Nashville, I'll cook for you. Oh, I'll have to make a point of it now. <laughs> um, but we were talking about this, how there, there was in Chicago, a virgin birth, uh, a shark gave birth, but in a virgin way, there was no insemination. I don't you hear about this. Yeah. I, mean, it, I haven't heard about it, but like, I mean, I understand it from my perspective theologically, because I just, I came to the conclusion that miracle, certain miracles happen, certain things right. outside of, you know, what we understand to be natural processes happen. Right. You know, Christ rose, Jesus rose from the dead and, you know, virgin birth and a, a creator God can act inside of his, cre his creation to make some of these things happen. Uh, I'm not hooked on the six literal 24 hour days like Pastor Dave is, but, you know, I think there are certain miracles that happen. But this one sounds like it's a little different. Like what a shark had a virgin birth. A so shark baby had a virgin shark, birth. Baby yeah. shark yeah. is yeah. like yeah. Messiah shark. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> also, time also time is a construct of white supremacy because uh, so I don't believe in a literal six day, 24 hour uh creation yeah. myth either um, not the point of the story but that's that's a whole other podcast episode <laughs> but time because time is also socially constructed what gives us any reason or evidence that biology is fixed that's if time is socially constructed what gives us evidence that gender and sex is fixed Okay, so wait, let me go back to the time thing first. So there's aspects of how we structure time that are constructed, if you will. Right. But, you know, sun up, sun down, or the way the earth 
revolves and all that stuff. That is that is part of time. That's or within time, if you will. But maybe like the fact that we have seven day weeks or 60 minute hours and that, that stuff is socially constructed. But time itself isn't necessarily a construct, is it? Or is it? Or is it? I, I mean, I wish Einstein were here because that like he'd have a blast with this. <laughs> I mean, you know, I know people who do their best work at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. Who says that you can't work at 3 a.m.? Yeah, yeah. Me and my wife have better times of the day. Like she there are certain times a day where I cannot talk to her or touch her, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm at my best, you know, and actually, as I've gone through life gone through the time of my life. Um, yeah. Those times, because when I was a kid and, and in my 20s, I was definitely a night owl. I'm still in some ways a night owl, but for some reason, I was never a morning person. But for some reason, I got my best work done in the morning. Mm. That's kind of a relatively new thing over the last five years or so, where I get up like 5, 5.30 every morning. And um, I, I was reading some of your stuff this morning. I Like mm -hmm. my, my brain is a little bit um, better soil, if you will. Yeah. So yeah, it's fertile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what about what about activist scholar, politicized theologian? Can you unpack that aspect of your person? Yeah. So I've been to a public scholarship really my entire career. Um, I didn't know that that was a thing that you could do until someone said, Oh, you're a public scholar. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> And I like to think about my work as being driven by activism, but rooted in scholarship. Or maybe it's rooted in activism and it's producing scholarship. Mm. I, I'm an activist scholar. You know, I'm, I don't know it, that term connotes a kind of evolution or movement or change instead of being enshrined in an institution where, you know, institutional life is about self-preservation. And I'm not, I'm not interested so much in self-preservation as I am in ethical futures for all. Okay. But the work that you do, the academic work that you do and the thinking that you do, the writing that you do, articulating uh, epiphanies, if you will, epistemological that, ruptures yes epistemological ruptures i'm gonna i'm gonna start a rock band and that's what that's gonna be the name of it great i can i be the backseat drummer <laughs> absolutely um so the thinking that you do the academic work that you do serves that purpose yeah of of tikkun olam or what was the um the ballet la pena yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. that makes sense and politicized theologian you know, everybody who is a faith leader started calling themselves a public theologian. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually a misuse of the term or or the role. Public theology historically rose out of a movement, rose out of a particular context. So you think about like Howard Thurman as a public theologian, but he was rooted at BU as the dean of the chapel and stewarding ritual life. I think of Martin Luther King Jr. as a public theologian um, stewarding his pastoral call in community into the world. And so I just got tired of calling myself a public theologian because because everyone just started using it. Yeah. And I thought the the work that I'm doing is actually politicized work. So I, I really feel more like a politicized theologian and a public ethicist because my training is in both theology and ethics. And I am very concerned with values, habits, and ethics and practices. So I really feel like what I'm doing publicly is helping people be good people, good citizens. And the theology that I'm doing is a kind of politicized theological project. What are some of the platforms or spaces where you're given an opportunity to help to to further this this mission to where you're given a seat at the table if you will or given mm -hmm. voice so that we can learn from someone who is a theologian and ethicist um, how to be 
better people and a better people? Well, I mean, certainly the publishing industry has given me a platform. I've I've published two books. Um, they're related but very different. Um, certainly my faculty position at Duke Divinity School gives me a platform to do that. Um, I get invited to various places to speak and and you know flex my brain, and that that is an opportunity. But it, you know, it's it's not places like Twitter anymore. I feel <laughs> um, that that's kind of gone down in flames. But I've I've been spending more time on my Substack newsletter, doing public scholarship, um, and and writing there. I I wrote there today and released my TED Talk video. It just was became live about twenty four hours ago, and I was notified. Um, but you know, I've I've been given lots of different platforms, whether the pulpit or community space or coffee shops. Uh, and people invite me in to, you know, share what I think is good news. Yeah, I, I think something like this, you know, the invitation to be in conversation, uh, to actually connect the dots around things is you know we we live in this soundbite world where people want the soundbite of 140 or 280 characters and that's just not how knowledge is produced knowledge is produced in relationship with people bodily knowledge intellectual knowledge emotional knowledge i mean it's it's relational it's not a transaction Okay, I, I need to hang on to a concept that we haven't touched upon yet, uh, bodily knowledge. But I do want to point out the fact I love that you point to something like a TED Talk that's already got tens of thousands of downloads, as well as a coffee shop, which to your point is in relationship, Yeah, you know, uh, in a conversation. So bodily knowledge, a theme that came up a couple times in the book is ancestral pain. Mm. Uh, can you describe what is meant by ancestral pain? Yeah, when I think about ancestral pain, I think about the struggle that my ancestors endured in crossing borders to get to a safe place. Um and how and how that ancestral pain continues in some capacity. I just was reflecting with my wife a couple nights ago, how the cycle, the cycle of oppression through poverty repeats itself. I, I grew up poor working working class. And even though I have this extensive platform, even though I've written two books, even though I have a PhD, I'm still very much working poor and and underpaid in many respects and that that this ancestral pain it it haunts you almost it follows you you know i don't i don't i don't i don't come from generational wealth i don't come from a family system that signs over a trust and that's the kind of ancestral pain that i'm talking about yeah yeah i'm two generations removed from my family in ukraine yeah uh, it was part of the Russian um, Empire at the at the time. Yeah, but Chernyastrov, Ukraine, and I, I, I can't shake the fact that I'm Batya Bessie's uh, grandson. Yeah, you know, named after Hanna, her mother, and Srulik, her uncle. Um, my father was named after her father, Chaim Rubin. So uh, we we can't we can't shake who we are. Right, and if you. Whether you grow up hearing those stories and living in those stories the way I did or not, you are still a product of that. Right. So I think I think that that's interesting. Now, more there's something that's related in your own um, life story, my life story. You actually pointed it out more in a statistical way in the book. You said nearly 50 percent of all children have secure attachments. The other 50 percent have either insecure or anxious attachments or maybe a combination of the two. And some quite possibly might have an avoidant attachment style. Mm -hmm. That's a constant. That's man. I, I had to stop on that one. Yeah. Uh, and just kind of ruminate on that for a bit. How does that 
Well, I guess if you care to share, how would you describe your attachments growing up, growing up and how does that affect you? Does that shape how you think and move and act and yeah, feel? I mean, I am a survivor of childhood abuse at the hands of my parent, uh, my mother, and also a survivor of childhood sexual abuse at the hands of the farm workers, which I talk about in the book. Yeah. And so, you know, the people who should have cared for me actually harmed me. And so I I developed an insecure attachment with myself and with those around me. It's why I went up into my my head. And I think it's why part of the reason why I'm gifted. I also live with autism. And so that's also part of part of me and my makeup, but I went into my head and I felt safe in my head. And I talk about this in the Ted talk, but my, my head and thinking and reading and writing was my safe place. And that's, I feel safe in those worlds. And, um, and, and the church became a safe haven and I developed a secure attachment with the church, with the church, even though I called out the patriarchal bullshit of the church yeah uh for me the church was what saved me from countless hours of abuse and you know it was just i knew that i wouldn't be harmed at the church even though i know people are harmed in church yeah but yeah i developed an insecure attachment and you know have been working that out since i was a kid yeah i'm i feel like i'm in a different place now and um, because I understand it. I understand my neurodivergence better. And I, and I have a supportive community and people who actually want me to flourish, you yeah. know, I think including you, you know, like you want me to flourish. I want you to flourish. And so we mutually support one another in that endeavor. When did you, and how did you discover your autism diagnosis? Well, I was in Cuba with a colleague and she said, you might, you might look into how people with autism navigate social space. Mm -hmm. I was offended. Oh, <laughs> and because I was like, I'm smart. What do what, you think? I don't know how to, how to manage social space. And, you know, I'm so smart. I'm dumb. And I don't mean that as a dig on myself. But then when the pandemic happened and my routine was disrupted, I completely fell apart. Oh. And so I reached out to a friend, Hillary McBride, and then I also reached out to Mike McCarg, who has autism. And I just asked for help. And then my friend Hillary sent me to a therapist here in Nashville, and she did a whole bunch of assessments. And I I went. So I did the testing and I talked to her and whatnot. And she was like, your brain works differently. Yeah. You register as on the autism spectrum and, and certain things make it worse. And I'm just, I'm just now getting in touch with myself to a point where I can understand. So like Friday, my wife and I went out to a date Did we eat at five o'clock and then we went to a dance show at eight and I loved it. I had a great time. Had uh, It was this all male dance company. It was about religion and spirituality and finding yourself and mixed raceness. And it, it was amazing. And then I got home and I was nauseous. Oh, that's why? Because, because I was overstimulated. Oh, even though I had a great time. And then the next day I couldn't hardly do anything. I was so anxious. Oh, wow. So I'm learning that if I am overstimulated, if I have too much time in social spaces, it manifests first as nausea and then as anxiety, or it could be anxiety and nausea. But I I found out in the pandemic when my routine was disrupted. I mean, that's how I initially found out that I that I had autism. I had suspected it. Yeah. But but people had said, no, you're too smart to have <laughs> autism. Because I, because there, there's a like I am high functioning. Yeah. But like one of the reasons why I wasn't very public at the conference we were just at is because I am overwhelmed in social space. I am too. I I mean Liz could probably tell you that breakfast that we got the day after. Um, my my head, I, I was in I was still in not a good place. 
Yeah. Um, because I, I found I've always been a little bit not cool in places where there's a lot of people and a lot of noise and stuff like that. But I would just deal with it by like waiting till everybody left the movie theater before I decided to leave. I didn't want right. to leave in that like little herd of people. Right. But uh, a- after the pandemic, I think something atrophied uh, in my brain and the wiring of my brain where it's like, like I, I, I had my first full on, I thought it was a heart attack. At, you know, when we started coming back to these things, yeah. big spaces, lots of people, big noise and stuff, man. That's how I got to know Larry with uh, with Podfest. Is I met him for the first time at at uh, the Evolutions in in LA last year. I was having a full. I thought it was a heart attack. You're a panic attack. Yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. And it wasn't like I, I don't know. It was my body responding to something. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I wanted to ask you too. We, we touched on it a little bit. Um, the book is about becoming, and you deal with the concept of becoming. At what point in your life? Did you start to think through, grapple with uh, being trans? Your uh, again, I'm I'm losing the right vocabulary to describe because it's not identity but orientation. But there's a part yeah. of it that is identity, yeah. And sure. The part of it that is orientation, right? Yeah. I mean, I think I knew at an early age that I was different. Uh, first, okay. racially, when my mom asked me. Does anyone ever make fun of the color of your skin? And that was the first time I noticed that we were a different color. You and your mom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and not long after that, I was like, I don't feel like a girl. I didn't want to wear skirts to Catholic school. I went to Catholic school growing up. I did things that are stereotypical for boys. I rode ATVs. I climbed trees. I Though I didn't like to get dirty, so I'm a bit of a diva. Um <laughs> But I would, I was interested uh, in, you know, math and sciences, but I went to college on a music scholarship. You know, it's a, I'm more interested in what is stereotypically male or masculine and always have been. And so I knew something was different. In seventies and eighties, they, they would describe that as being a tomboy. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you're in the process of becoming um, another big concept that you deal with in the book is the concept of a body, yeah. but not just an individual body, the individual body uh, and the corporate body, right? Yeah. And how those bodies interact um, and that both, it's so dynamic how you describe it because both of those individual and corporate bodies are in the process of becoming. Yeah. So it makes it like super dynamic, right? Yeah. I mean, we we are a body. We are we are not just individuals. We are, you know, individuals seem to be. Well, individualism is not collapsing, but the individual is no longer connected to other individuals. And I want to make the argument: we actually are. We are deeply and radically interconnected. The question is, how will we relate? Yeah. So when we when we go to the the voter box, how will we relate? Not just with the people that we're in line with, but at the ballot box when we vote. How do we vote for ethical futures? Yeah, I, I like how at, at one point in the book you describe it even beyond just other people, like like even the way that you describe taking off your shoes and feeling your feet on right. the earth, you know, right. or or your decision about uh, where you get your veggies and and um, and stuff like that on Fridays. Yeah. You know, it's um, uh, appreciating the the farm, you know, and, and the interconnectivity of all that life there. Yeah. You know, I love it. Yeah. It's it's like, you know, how do we be in relationship on a planetary scale? There's a reason why we don't eat our dogs and our cats because we become friends with them. But how do we become friends with cows and pigs and chickens? if we're going to consume them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a very, uh, it, we see uh, images or or have, have been told stories of native Americans. And that comes to mind for me is that there's a different relationship. Like, um, Oh, what was that Daniel day Lewis movie uh, where he plays a, a native American and they kill a deer 
but then they have a moment with the deer to say basically thank, thank you. you. Yeah. 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 Um so <laughs> I could do this forever. I, I like hanging out with you. So yeah, it's good. We, we could keep going, but yeah. Um I wanted to uh so we'll have to do this again and, and maybe we'll um whether it's you and me or we'll reel some other friends into yeah. the conversation and yeah. explore some other stuff. Cause there really is like, my head is still spinning. I, I almost don't know where to take it, but um, what I, I, I can ask you if you have any questions for me. <laughs> well, I, I mean, what is it like for you to be in relationship with me who is so different in, in some ways and then not so different in other ways? First word that comes to mind is invigorating, enlightening, and honor, um, I, I'm, and I, I don't say this for effect, but I'm I'm thrilled and I'm honored. And here's why: because there's a dark side um, to good intentions mm. uh, that I've I've felt more over the last couple of years. I, I've always I've felt versions of it and flavors of it throughout my life, but especially over the last couple three years, I've felt it much more intensely because of the shade of my skin mostly and now the shade mm -hmm. of my hair um and you know what genitalia i have and stuff like right. that i i felt a very sharp sense of exclusion in numerous mm -hmm. spaces uh now a lot of folks that are listening or you know like oh cry me a river you know um because of how uh, they might very quickly and dismissively identify me right. but um I, I but in a way it's good to have been excluded and and shamed uh in different um circumstances because it allows me to feel um that that sense of gratitude when i am in conversation with you yeah. you know so that's yeah gratitude honored um that's uh that's what it's like does that is that a fair answer <laughs> yeah may we create more opportunities for that kind of flourishing i'd love it for more people than just us yeah Absolutely. Yeah. So we'll, we'll definitely be talking more about that. And uh, there's that the event that you told me about that, that I want to look into, hopefully the schedule will allow. Yeah. Uh, but either way, like, you know, whether it's in this format or just hanging out, you know, yeah. which is even, you know, just awesome. So we're, we're going to figure that out. So how can folks find more information about you, our collective becoming that that's the sub stack yeah. it's called, right? And um, all, all the great work that you're doing. Yeah, so my Substack is Our Collective Becoming, and you can find it ourcollectivebecoming.com. And I think we'll soon begin to transition everything under that umbrella of Our Collective Becoming. So keep watch at that domain, ourcollectivebecoming.com. But that's where you can sign up for my Substack. And I would say, you know, as a public scholar who is working poor, who is threatened on the daily by white supremacist groups, please consider subscribing. And if you have the means, uh, become a monthly uh, donor subscriber. Um, we're, we're basically building out a dispersed community and um, really trying to create knowledge, production, educational opportunities, um, We'll be launching an app here pretty soon that will invite people in to have conversations, um, be engaged, and we're now trying to figure out how to get the Substack and the app to talk to each other. So when you become a member of one, you become you become a member of both. Um, maybe I have to do that manually for people. I don't know, but um, yeah, our collective becoming uh, dot com. Certainly, I'm on uh, Instagram, where I'm Dr. Roberto Che, and then you can find me on Twitter, too. Awesome. I will definitely include all of those uh, links in the show notes uh, so folks can easily find you uh, that way. And uh, I, I just, I really love hanging out with you. This is Yeah, this I hope really you can cool. make it in April. I mean, if some of your listeners, I don't know when this is going to air, but if some of your listeners want to come hang out in April in North Carolina to talk about imagination and ethical futures. I would welcome that. There's limited spots available, only 30 spots because okay. we're wanting to have a close intimate gathering of conversations, but I would welcome folks to 
sign up. You can find that information on my Substack, and hopefully, Corey, you can make it to come hang out with us. Is that going to be in Durham? It's going to be in Montreal, outside of Asheville. Okay. All right. But you could make it a trip, and you yeah. could come to our retreat, and then you could swing over to Durham and see your buddies. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Amy Laura. Yeah. She, yeah, she's up there. So that'd be fun to hang out with her. And um, there's still a few folks uh, in that area that I just love hanging out with. So yeah, that'd be really neat. And Lisa might actually be on her training. So I'm, I'm uh, scooping big news here. My lovely bride of 25 years uh, just is going, got accepted into the training program for uh to be a flight attendant oh <laughs> so wow it's gonna be a four week intense time yeah so i'll have to find a way to uh constructively use my time during that month so <laughs> yeah well i think i think uh being in community is a great way yeah absolutely well i appreciate you including me in that and i really do hope that that um that works out uh so i'm just gonna wrap it here uh and folks as always if you dig what we're doing here Please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about us. Talk politics and religion without killing each other. We are easy to recommend as politicsandreligion.us. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. And you can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E and S as in Sam at Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.